Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. I went on vacation, so we had a couple weeks off. Sorry about that. But we're back now, and we're going to do chapter 4, which is titled The Relation of the Father and the Son, Kingship, Monotheism, and Christology in the New Testament. So if you remember, in the last few episodes, we've kind of been establishing the Old Testament view of God and gods, but for the last episode, what we focused on mainly was kind of bringing us up to speed on what the worldview on God or multiple gods, or at least multiple deity, was that informed the world that Jesus was born into and also the New Testament authors. And so now we're going to talk about specifically the view of some of the New Testament authors and what their view was and how they how they put Christ in this picture with monotheism and how they can have another god or another deity without conflicting with that. So here's a quote from the book. You say, Perhaps the most prominent feature of Christian scriptural interpretation of the relation of the Father to the Son is the practice of identifying Old Testament scriptures that refer to two divine beings, and even two distinct heavenly beings who are both referred to as God in Hebrews and in the Gospel of John. It is a practice that is present throughout the New Testament and became prominent even in later Christian scriptural arguments as demonstrated by Justin Martyr. The point here is that the New Testament authors to prove the deity of Jesus refer time and time again to these different scriptural passages or kind of different ideas that people would have had during this time about two divine entities, and we're going to talk about some of those today. So, to introduce it, before we get into the actual scriptural references that we're going to be referring to, what is kind of the context, I guess, for their view, other than what we've already talked about? Is there anything else we need to know other than what we've gone over in the other podcasts? Just that the view is prominent in the Old Testament, and so it was very comfortable for the earliest Christians to have another beside God who was recognized as a divine being, an expression of God in action in the world. For instance, you've got uh, the angel of Yahweh who appears in many Old Testament texts. For instance, when Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord as the angel of Yahweh, he recognizes him as God, but it turns out to be that it's the angel of Yahweh, not Yahweh himself. That is wrestling. We have numerous pericopes in the Old Testament where we have this divine being or the debar of God. Debar is Hebrew for word or the speaking element of God. And so there were these notions that beside God there was another divine principle, another divine being who was essentially, uh, again, the, the royal vizier of the king. And so you've got a king, but you've also got the messenger of the king. The king never really goes to the foreign kingdom to deliver the message. He sends a messenger who goes there in his place, appears in his own name, and speaks in first person as if though he is the king himself. In this case, however, there's a confluence with the honor and shame culture where we have divine beings that are being honored by God. Remember, we talked about the intertestamental Jewish pseudepigrapha. We have beings like Yahweh and the Apocalypse of Abraham, where we have the Son of Man or the Righteous One in the Book of Enoch, who appears as God, sits on God's throne, does the kinds of things that only God can do, but by God's permission and sufferance. And so this is not a new idea, but in the world in which Jesus is born, the Christians were challenged, not while Jesus was alive so much, because the Gospels are very clear, and let's just clear the way here a little bit. The Gospels are very clear that the disciples, while Jesus was immortal, didn't have a clue what he was talking about. In fact, that's a good translation of about two dozen statements in the Synoptic Gospels where it says, but they didn't understand what he was saying or they had no idea what he was saying. Even when he's very explicitly talking about the fact that he's going to die and resurrect within three days and the temple will be destroyed, he's talking about his, you know, there's a glossing, he's speaking about his bodily temple. They didn't get it. I mean, that's immediately followed up with the statement that they didn't get it at that time. It was only after the resurrection when Jesus becomes recognized. And, and he was the Christ, but even when he claims to be the Christ, or when he's recognized as the Christ, for instance, when Peter says, you know, thou art the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus immediately turns to him and says, don't tell anybody. 
which is really strange to us, but essentially it's the messianic secret while Jesus is alive that only his disciples are let in on, and they don't get it. But after his resurrection, there was some type of an explanation required for Jesus's status in relationship to God, and it was a divine status because he had been honored by the Father in a way that no other person in the history of the world had been honored. And so he is being raised. And so what happens is immediately the earliest Christians begin to scour the Old Testament and they look for passages where they can exploit a feature that it refers to two gods or to two divine beings. And when I say two gods, I mean two deities. But it must be kept in mind always that I believe that everything we're going to see is consistent with kingship monotheism. That is, you have the Most High God and there are other divine beings. They're the same kind of being that he is. But everything they do, they do only with his authority and permission. They are subordinate to him in authority. They're not subordinate in the kind of being they are. They're fully divine beings. But they all honor and recognize this one God as the ultimate source of authority. And so that's the background, I think, that it's necessary to make sense of the kinds of things we're going to be looking at where immediately the Christians go out and begin to look for passages that refer to, to two beings that are both divine. And the first one we'll talk about is actually a number of different scriptures intertwined, but most importantly is Psalm 110, which we'll get into now. Okay, well, also just one other thing. I know you use this book as, or at least in the bibliography, but I was kind of watching a video about it. It's called The Two Powers in Heaven by Alan F. Sagel, who is actually a Jewish scholar. And he just kind of puts forth the idea that in the Old Testament and all that, this two powers in heaven was a very common theme. But once Christ came along, and a few, you know, like in the ensuing years and centuries after that, Judaism kind of moved away from that and made sure to reinterpret and put a stop to this idea of this two powers in heaven. But that was definitely a belief that it was actually held before they had to differentiate themselves from Christianity. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And in the book, he actually argues against that since he's a Jew trying to reconcile it. But I think a lot of Christians are use that book to because uh, it's a very, you know, well-done scholarly book about all these references in the Old Testament to these two powers. Anyway, we'll, we'll go into that more. Yeah, we will. But I think you've got to keep in mind that I think the evidence supports that the notion of that there was an argument against two powers in heaven only arose after Christ's lifetime and really after the first century. It wasn't an issue for the Jews until they got into the second century. They began to distinguish themselves the earliest Christians saw themselves as just an offshoot of Judaism, but over time they began to distinguish themselves with various boundary markers that denoted a distinction in community. And the Jews were looking at ways to distinguish themselves from the Christians to say, well, the Christians aren't true Jews. And the Christians were saying, well, the Jews are now an apostate Israel and the new Israel and God's people are really now defined by those who accept and have faith in Christ. Okay. And then also, I guess, just as a background to each of these things that we're doing, we're also trying to differentiate, I mean, this was the actual view, but also a, a Mormon view of a trinity, which consists of separate beings from kind of more traditional evangelical Christianity's view that God is literally just one being. And anyway, we'll, you'll see that as we go. So like that's underlying a lot of the arguments that you make here. Jacob is going to take the first few sections here addressing some passages in Acts and Philippians. All right, so the first set of scriptures from the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 36, and this is Christ as Lord at God's right hand, similar to the declaration made in Psalm 110. But reading from the New American Bible, starting in verse 30, it says, But since King David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that neither was he abandoned to the netherworld, nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised this Jesus, of this we are all witnesses, exalted at the right hand of God. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth, as you both see and hear. For David did not go up into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is quoting Psalm 110 until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. 
Right, and right off, uh, you say, in this remarkable passage, we have an echo of the belief of the earliest Christians, stated and summarized publicly for the first time after the resurrection. That being, Jesus is the Messiah, as the descendant of David, God the Father has vindicated Jesus' claim to be king through the resurrection, which culminated in the Father's exalting him and placing him on a throne at his own right hand. Let's put it in the context. It was extremely important for the earliest Christians that Jesus was a descendant of David. Remember the royal acclamation to David, two of them, one is thou art a God, and the second is thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. These are the royal acclamations made to the Israelite monarch, David, at the time that he was raised to the throne. Christ is now seen as the legitimate successor to David, both physically and spiritually, that is, He is now the one who was recognized as God's successor to the throne, and not as a successor to the throne, but to share the rule of heaven with God. And he is raised to that purpose because he's recognized implicitly as the king, to having the same status as David. That's why it's so important to the earliest Jews that we recognize Jesus as a descendant of David and that he is the new David, because he is, in essence, the new king of Israel who is being recognized. And now we need to talk a little bit about Psalm 110. Here's the most remarkable thing about Psalm 110. It is the most common scripture cited in the New Testament. It is cited in virtually every single discussion about Jesus in the first 100 years. And that continues as one of the most popular scriptures in the second 200 years of Christianity. Why was it so popular? What was its purpose? We have the statement where the Lord says to my Lord, and my Lord is Jesus Christ, and the Lord is Yahweh. And so we have two divine figures that are being referred to in this scripture. And so what the Christians are beginning to do is to exploit these scriptures that recognize two lords. And the reason that's important is that the Lord has given his divine name. Remember, we're talking again about a culture of honor and shame, and the highest honor that can be given to one by a benefactor in the culture of honor and shame is to be adopted into the family and to become a son, to become the heir to all that the benefactor has, and then to be given the same name as the benefactor because one has been adopted into the family. So oftentimes you would have these mentors, they would bring in young boys who would work with them, they would become apprentice to them, and they would develop a very close relationship, be a loving relationship where they work closely together and the benefactor was invested in the success of his client. Over time, the greatest honor that could be paid was precisely to be adopted as his son. And so what we see is this synthesis of ideas of David being declared the son of God, being declared a God, and the recognition and honor that when the benefactor adopts and recognizes the son, the son stands at the right hand of the benefactor. He then becomes the primary heir to the benefactor. So to stand at the right hand was a great honor, the greatest honor that could be paid. And so all of these ideas come together in in the interpretation, at least, of Psalm 110 given to it by the earliest Christians. And so this is kind of the perfect scripture for the Christians to be able to explain in their Jewish culture why having a second divine figure who has the very name Yahweh is not a violation of the recognition of the Most High God as the King of heaven and earth, because he has been given this status as a matter of benefaction in the culture of honor and shame. That's exactly how it worked, and so Psalm 110 is extremely important in the early Christian exegesis and their understanding of the relationship of Christ to God the Father. There is no notion that Jesus Christ is somehow identical to God the Father, or they're somehow one in substance. You know, no metaphysical notion at all of a unity so that we could be able to make it consistent with a metaphysical monotheism the way that the Greeks would argue about monotheism. And so the thought world that we've entered into is a very different culture than the way that the Greeks thought logically about, well, there's only one creator, there's only one uncreated being, and everything else is created, so the one uncreated being is God. Everything else is created, and then the question arises, well, we have two lords. We have the Lord saying to my Lord, well, which side is that Lord on? Is he on the created side or the uncreated side? They didn't have that issue because they weren't thinking in that way. They were thinking in terms of the culture of honor and shame in which they reside. 
All right. And um, as you said, the father is not abdicating the throne of heaven to his, his son as a successor and heir. But at this point, he's no longer just the vizier or, or co-regent. At this point, he is an heir to the throne and a recipient of the divine name Lord, but, but not an heir as a, uh, in the sense that he's a successor. He's a co-ruler at this point. Right. He's not a successor. God isn't abdicating the throne. He's sharing the rule of the universe with his son as a matter of honor. And so it's appropriate. Not only does he stands at the right hand of God in virtually every one of the scriptures we're going to look at, but in Revelation, there's also a throne for Christ. He has his own throne. There are two thrones. And and we're going to, when we talk about Christ as Lord and Son of Man, looking at Daniel 7, we'll get into the nature of the thrones more. But the bottom line is, is that we have here in Acts 2 and 30 through 36, this notion of Christ at the right hand of God. And the reason he's at the right hand of God is that he is given the supreme honor of being God's son and be given the very same status that he's receiving from his father. Okay. And you're saying that the allusion to Psalm 110 is remarkable because its use appears to be utterly unique in the literature of Second Temple Judaism. What do you mean by that? Why is it unique in it being used? Outside of Christianity, there are no references to Psalm 110 in the way that the Christians refer to it. That is, to establish two divine beings. There's just no Jewish treatment of Psalm 110 in that way or remotely approaching it. And so we have this very unique interpretation that arises very early, probably their earliest scriptural interpretation to explain the relation between the Father and the Son. So we have this very unique interpretation that arises in Judaism, and it becomes then the most ubiquitous interpretation that is most often cited throughout Christian sources. So Psalm 110 becomes kind of a touchstone for the understanding of the relation between the Father and the Son. All right, and then for some reason, back to the, uh, an individual we were discussing in the last chapter, Richard Balcom, he uh, seems to think that Psalm 110 envisions Christ on the very throne of God, and uh, you're saying this misrepresents Christ's status. Yeah, I mean, there's this interesting, I've recognized Baucom as a a really good New Testament scholar, but he kind of misrepresents Psalm 110 in the way it was used by the Christians, because he says, you know, that Christ is seated on the very throne of God, but that's, that's just false. That's not the way the Christians presented it. Christ was standing at the right hand of God who was seated on the throne. And so, getting back to Balcom's interpretation, Balcom wants to interpret these New Testament passages as if though they were being presented in a, in a Greek culture dealing with the metaphysical issues that only arose later when they were dealing with the Arian controversy, and that they resolved in the various creedal statements where essentially they're claiming that the Father and the Son are the same substance. That thought world is a million miles away from the way that the scriptures are addressing this. And for Balcom, to engage in that kind of eisegesis and looking at this kind of scripture is very disappointing to me. And again, you go forward that the reason that this is such a, a powerful passage of scripture and the reason why it's being cited so much is the fact that it refers to two distinct figures, not just Christ suddenly being on the throne of God. Yeah, and, and one where Christ is recognized as having the very title Yahweh, he's a Lord. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't use the name Yahweh. When they read the scriptures out loud, they would see the name Yahweh, but they would pronounce Adonai. So instead of saying, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, it would say Adonai said to my Adonai. But they all understood that the divine name was underlying the use of the term Lord. It's a reference to two divine figures, both of which bear the divine name. So if we have two lords or two Adonais, then how is monotheism or commitment to one God maintained? If you don't mind, first off, go into how they would understand that in Second Temple Judaism. How are the Jews being considered monotheistic at this point with that view? And then you know, your view on kingship monotheism. Yeah, I mean, they had no problem recognizing to Adonais because the name that's given to Christ is a name of honor and benefaction. It's like a family name. All three of us on this podcast have the name Osler. If I were to adopt a son, he would also take the name Osler. And he has the name because that's my name, and I give it to him in in the scope of the adoption. It's the very same thing here. In a sense, it's used like a family name, but it's even more than that. It's a title. 
So it's like the president of the United States conferring on someone else the title of president of the United States and saying we're both going to be president today. And that's the kind of thing that's happening here. They are both sharing in the full rule of the universe. All right. I, I guess that the, another question comes up is, you know, we see that Christ is bestowed with the, the title of Lord, and that's the interpretation of Psalms 110. When is it that Christ becomes or that he receives this title? Uh, and, and Corey, is this your note here that Mark says it's at baptism? Yeah, well, I, I just, it's basically... My question here is that in there's different times when he's understood to be called to being the Lord or the bestowed with this adoption as the Son of God. So, for example, Mark says it's at his baptism when, you know, the voice of God had said at that point in the Gospel of Mark, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, you know, hello. Whereas Paul in his letters and his theology, he puts forth more that it happened at resurrection, and that's when he actually became the heir or was adopted as God's son. So I was saying, why the different views on that? Well, they're not necessarily inconsistent. You have the citation to Psalm 2, where he's declaring Jesus to be his beloved son. And declaration is made by God the Father. He's quoting Psalm 2, which is the royal acclamation to David, that this day he has been begotten. He's being recognized as God's son, the son of God. And so that's not inconsistent with the recognition that Christ was exalted to an exalted status at his resurrection. The benefaction is given to Christ as Jesus, even at the time he begins his, his ministry. But the full glory that he would enjoy it occurs at the time of the resurrection. Paul focuses on the resurrection as the time when Jesus is exalted and recognized as the Lord, whereas Mark concentrates on the baptism, but they're not really inconsistent as I see it. They're just focusing on different moments. Okay. All right. We'll go ahead with the next part. The next passages of scripture here are found in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. And uh, this is Christ as Lord and Son of Man. So the more relevant verses here to what we're discussing and how it relates to Psalm 110 are verses 55 and 56, and those from the New American Bible. This is Stephen when he's being stoned for blasphemy. But he, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked up intently to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried that he had committed blasphemy, warranting stoning. The Jews were merely angered at Stephen's claim that they had murdered Jesus, but his claim to see Jesus standing as the Son of Man at the right hand of God outraged them so that they covered their ears and picked up stones to kill him on the spot. They clearly regarded Stephen's claim as blasphemy. However, Jesus did not sit on a throne, but stands at the right hand of God thus indicating that he is both distinct from and subordinate to God. He is God's royal vizier. So what we have here is, again, a confluence of a number of concepts. This is an explicit reference again to Psalm 110. No, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The underlying text says he sees him standing at the right hand of glory. The underlying Greek word is doxa, which means glory. The word isn't God. But it's clearly a reference to Psalm 110, and so it gets translated that way, and appropriately so. But it's also a reference to the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Note the reference that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is a view or the picture that had already been painted by Jesus just before his crucifixion. He's standing essentially before the Sanhedrin, and he is talking to Herod. And in the Gospels, he says that they will see the Son of Man coming, quote, in a cloud with power and glory to judge the entire earth. So they're quoting this notion about the Son of Man from Daniel 7. The notion of the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God refers back to the Babylonian mythologies of the writer on the clouds coming in power and glory. In fact, there's a specific reference to coming on the clouds. And so you have this entire complex of ideas going all the way back to the Babylonian notion of Baal, who is the writer on the clouds, that is taken up by Jesus as reported in the Gospels to reflect 
his status. He is the Son of Man that is the one who will come in a cloud with power and glory to judge the entire earth. He will be the judge. And so we also have this reference to Daniel 7. Remember, in Daniel 7, we have the Ancient One or the Ancient of Days. In fact, it just means it's another way of saying the Most High God. In fact, the very term El Elyon appears in Daniel 7 to refer to the Most High God. And the most ancient one is just saying that this is the most ancient of the gods, or the original one of the gods, if you will. And so we're dealing with the Most High God. Again, we have the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in Daniel 7. But the important thing about Daniel 7 is there are two thrones in Daniel 7, one for the Ancient of Days and one for the Son of Man. And so this complex of ideas comes together, and the Jews who hear Stephen say what he sees in heaven, he sees Christ standing at the right hand of glory, they know full well that he is making an assertion that Jesus is this very Son of Man who is the one standing at the right hand of God. They understand this to be a reference again to Psalm 110. They know what's being said, and it outrages them. So this entire complex of ideas come together. again. What we have in Daniel is a description of the second power in heaven, a second level of authority under the Most High, who gives authority to the Son of Man to rule in his place and alongside him. He is a, a vizier, a second power in heaven that was, again, common in Jewish literature. And we've seen this as the, as the right-hand man, the vizier, whether it's Michael, Enoch, Melchizedek, Moses, Abraham, or another one of the divine beings that we find in the intertestamental literature. Christ has this status in Acts 7, 51 through 60 in Stephen's vision. Now, there's another feature of Stephen's vision that I just want to comment on very quickly, and that is when they stone Stephen, he prays and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is significant because he's quoting a psalm which, which originally said, Yahweh, receive my spirit. Note how he uses the name Lord Jesus. So again, he's recognizing that Jesus has been given the name and title of Lord, which is the substitute for the name Yahweh. And so he has, again, the divine name that has been given to him as a benefaction by the Most High God. But now, this is something very significant. Instead of simply Yahweh receiving his spirit, he believes that he is now going to be taken into the presence of Jesus in being stoned. This is a very significant development in the way that the Christians thought about Christ. He is now a power in heaven to act on their behalf. And so, you know, we have this very significant statement in, in Acts 7 that we get when Stephen is, is stoned because he claims to see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. I do just want to read what we're talking about in Daniel 7 with this mention of a, a second power in heaven. So in Daniel 7, verse 9, first we're talking about the ancient one again. It says, uh, this is Daniel saying, As I watched, thrones were set up, and the ancient one took his throne. Talking about God. And then in verse 13, he says, As the visions during the night continued, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven when he reached the ancient one and was presented before him. So here we are seeing that second deity come and be presented before the ancient one. Yeah, I think that's important to put it in the context. I urge everyone to go read the scriptures that we're referring to so that they can scrutinize them for themselves. But I think in our discussion, it's essential that we have that kind of text right before us. All right. So the next scriptural passages we're going to go through are uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. And this is Christ exalted as Lord by God. So you actually start in verse... 5 and go to 11. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read those verses. Have among yourselves the same mind that is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, held on to. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in human likeness and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient in death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the imagery of God giving his name to another and exalting Christ to the status of Lord is uh, reflected you say that this is one of the most debated passages in Christian scripture. 
and that a number of scholarly studies attempting to interpret it is truly staggering. Why is that so? The big debate is over whether this refers to the pre-existence of Jesus and is a three-stage interpretation. So you have Jesus at a time when he is exalted and of the same status as God. He then goes through a kenotic emptying. There's the verb that appears is a form of the verb kenosis, which is the Greek for emptying or letting go. And what Christ does is empties himself in the second stage of his glory to become mortal. And then the third stage is that he's exalted by God again and given the divine name. The question is whether there's merely a two-stage and that Jesus is recognized as a mortal, as having divine status, and then is exalted. So there are lots of studies that debate that kind of an issue. There's a second issue, and that is what we have in this is a reference to the most intensely monotheistic scripture in all of the Old Testament with Isaiah, where the name Yahweh appears, that every knee will bow and recognize Yahweh. But here, instead, it is every knee will bow and recognize Jesus or Christ. And so what we have is a scripture, and Paul, again, is exploiting a scripture that refers to two divine beings within its context. It's a very text-dependent kind of a reading, but the bottom line is, is that we have here a recognition that Christ, again, bears the divine name Yahweh. All right. And so we see the pattern emerging in early Christian exegesis that uh, the texts that refer to Lord and permit a reading that distinguishes the Lord from God are adopted to explain the relationship between the one God, uh, the Father, and the Lord, the Son. And then uh, you also say it's significant that Paul substitute Jesus for Lord, and this is the Lord where it would say Yahweh. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it would say Yahweh and be read as Adonai. Okay. And this is in his genuine letters. This happens more than 50 times, but he never replaces Jesus Christ or Lord where God, Elohim, El, or Oteos, and uh, it appears to be the underlying Hebrew or uh, the Septuagint texts. Right. So here, here's the thing that we have. Whenever we have the, the name Yahweh in a text, we see the Christians using the name Yahweh and giving it as an honorific name to Jesus as the Christ, when they read scriptures that refer to Yahweh in the Old Testament, they'll often replace Yahweh with Christ or Jesus. But when the underlying word in the Hebrew text is Elohim, El, or in the Septuagint is Hotheos, meaning the God, never once do they replace that term, the name Elohim, the name El, the name El Elyon, or El Shaddai. None of those names ever get replaced with Christ in the reading of the scripture. And the reason for that is that the Christians recognized that these were not honorific names that were given to Jesus. Elohim is not a name given to Jesus. El, El Shaddai, El Elyon, these are names that refer uniquely to the Most High God. They cannot refer to Jesus because it's they are not honorific names given to him. Okay, however, Yahweh can be sometimes referring to the Father in the early Christian understanding. Is that correct? There's no question but that in the reading of the Old Testament, Yahweh is often referring to the one God, and they recognize that at times the name Yahweh refers to the Father. But again, it's the same, by analogy, we all have the same last name, Osler. If somebody looks and says, hey, Osler, we'll all turn because we all have the same name. It doesn't mean that I'm not an Osler and that I'm not your father. It just means we bear the same name and you bear the same name because you're my sons and you bear it by inheritance. All right. So, once again, while the Father and the Son share the same name, glory, exaltation, and honor, Christ is not seen as identical with the one God, the Father. The identities of giver and receiver are clearly differentiated. All right, and I have a question here, if I can put it in at this point, I think, is where it would fit. And, you know, if we're going to get into this later, that's fine. You can just tell me. We'll talk about it later. But in your view, it seems to be much like this three-stage view where Christ is fully God and then he comes down, you know, he empties himself of divinity, and then he goes back to being God. So my question is, is it really a great gift? Like, what, what is, what's the significance if he was already fully God to be given all these inheritances or exaltations if he was already there? It doesn't seem like God gave him anything he didn't already basically have, unless you're saying he literally gave it up for good and then re-earned it on his own merit or something like that. No, he had a greater exaltation. I mean, 
Greater than equal with God, though? I mean, you say he's already equal with God, so how can you be greater than that? Let me explain. So the early Christian ascension of Isaiah and a number of the Jewish pseudepigraphic works recognize the pre-existent deity is not one who co-rules with God. He doesn't sit on God's throne. He doesn't share a throne with God. What we have now is that Christ is exalted in the sense that he is given the full status of rulership and also being recognized now as a power in heaven that is a saving power. His name now has power to save. Before his earthly ministry, he doesn't have that kind of recognition. And so what's happening is Christ is being recognized. Not only is he being honored, he's being given a status now where people interact with God through Christ. He has now become the sole mediator. So another form of the benefaction in the honor and shame culture that's given to Christ is, and this was an honor that was given to clients very often by a benefactor. Let me give it an analogy. I'm somebody who knows the president of the United States, and the president of the United States has a lot of trust and respect for me. And so if I recommend somebody to him for his cabinet, I have, because of the honor given to me by the president, I have a certain power to influence the relationship between that person and the benefactor. With God, what God is now doing is recognizing Christ as the mediator of the relationship with God, so that in order to have the relationship with God, we have to go through his mediator. This is something that happens all the time in the ancient world, where you can't go directly to the king. You have to go through his vizier or through another appointed person in order to even get an audience with the king, because the king doesn't deal with lowly people. That's not what's happening with God, but God is now saying, I honor Christ. I'm giving him co-rule with me. He is now sitting on a throne, whereas before he didn't have a throne. He's given the divine name, whereas before he didn't have the divine name. And he has been given the status as a mediator so that now you all deal with him in order to deal with me. You cannot deal with me without dealing with him. And in this sense, they become one because the only way to have the honor with God that Christ has is to go through Christ as the mediator. Again, in our culture, a lot of this doesn't, you know, this doesn't make metaphysical sense, but they weren't making metaphysical sense. They were in a different kind of a culture. And they were looking at the nature of relationships that people had in that culture and the nature of the power structure of those relationships and using those to explain the relationship between us and Christ and between Christ and the Father, and therefore between us and the Father. And so that's kind of how that works. Wait, that's fine. We can get into it more. I'm sure I'll bring it up again in, when we talk about John and the pre-existent Christ, but I just wanted to... But it's important to recognize that his glory, the glory that he enjoyed... He still had a fullness of divine glory. He's no more a divine being or any less a divine being, just like you're no less human after. If I adopt a person, they're, they're no less human before adoption than they are after adoption, but their status has changed. All right, so yeah, we'll move on to some other passages here. So the next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 28, which you call out that it's Christ as God's vizier in general. And then the passages that you cite, or I guess, yeah, you go through all of it, so let me just read that real quick. Say, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to his God and Father. So, this is talking about Christ. When he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Which you'll recognize again is that reference to... It's Psalm 110. It, yeah, Psalm 110. He's, he's quoting Psalm 110, even in the passage where he's going to put all enemies under his feet. And then 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he subjected everything under his feet. Back to Psalm 110. But when it says that everything has been subjected, it is clear that it excludes the one who subjected everything to him. When everything is subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. So, you say this passage is the clearest indication in Paul's letters that he views Christ as God's chief agent and vice-regent, second only to God the Father. So, what verse specifically, because I don't see him using the word vizier or second, but you're saying it just kind of infers that, why when he says that he basically subdues everything and then hands it over to his father, God. Yeah, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom 
to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So what happens is Christ becomes the captain of God's armies. He's destroying everybody who opposes the kingdom of God. Remember, God is the king of the kingdom. And he is going to hand that kingdom over to God, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, which is a reference to Psalm 110 which is asserting that this other Lord that is recognized, like David, as the king, is the one who has given the power over all enemies of the kingdom of God. And Christ, again, has destroyed the very last enemy, which is death. When it says he's put everything under him, it is also clear that doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. So here you have a definite hierarchy being explained. Christ is recognized as the general or the captain of the armies of God, like Melchizedek was in the Melchizedek scroll. He is given power to rule over the kingdom. And then Christ, when he defeats all enemies, delivers the kingdom up to his father. And God has put everything in the universe under Christ. And then Paul gives this gloss and wants to make sure you understand. I'm not saying that God himself is under Christ. When it says everything is put under him, that doesn't include God. God is above Christ. And so we have here this very clear explanation by Paul that Christ is the, the general of the army. It's a very clear explanation of kingship monotheism. And I wouldn't want to miss the reference because in essence, there's also a reference to Melchizedek in the Dead Sea Scrolls, who has the very same role leading the heavenly assembly of gods against the enemies of God, and then to deliver the kingdom to God when Melchizedek is also recognized as a god. So we have a very similar thought world occurring here that's being referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 and 24 through 28. Yeah, and you say, you say I'm not claiming that 1 Corinthians 15 is dependent on the Melchizedek text that you're referring to, but rather it, it, it was a common tradition that God's vice-regent would defeat the enemies of God and deliver the undisputed rule of the kingdom to God. So you're saying it's, this was not a foreign thought to them. You're showing, again, this is the worldview that they had. And so hooking Jesus onto that is not something that's foreign to them. It's just assigning a different person than they probably thought of originally. Precisely. All right, the next section we go over is also in 1 Corinthians, but it's chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And the emphasis here is about the differentiation between one God and one Lord and how that can mean monotheism is maintained while still referring to that. So... Verse 4 in the middle of it says, We know that there is no idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, though there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, there are, to be sure, many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. We go over this because obviously that's kind of a confusing text if you're also coming from the orthodox, or not orthodox, but the traditional background, you'd be like, well, boom, pow, right there. See, he's, he's saying there's one God, and basically that one God is Jesus. Because look, it says they do the same thing. It really doesn't. All things are for God. They're for God. But all things are through Christ. Christ is now the mediator through whom everybody goes to access the one God. And it's very clear that the one God is the Father. There is also one Lord, and the reason there's one Lord is there's only one person who's been given the benefaction of receiving the divine name from the Father, the name Yahweh, which is substituted with the word Lord, Adonai. And so when it says there is but one God, the Father, it's saying that the one God is the Father, and there's also one mediator, one Lord who bears the divine name as a matter of benefaction, and that is Jesus. So... What it's really saying in this context has nothing to do with asserting that Jesus and the Father are just somehow the same being referred to twice. The word Kai, which joins them, one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus, the word and is kind of a, it can be translated the same way the semantic field would include in addition to as one of its primary meanings. And that's what I would claim it means in this particular passage. All right, great. So yeah, I mean... If you take that meaning in its original Greek, then, yeah, there's no way to confuse it there. And then, I don't know, you don't have to go into this a lot just for the sake of time, but in the book you kind of discuss at length, again, Bauckham's interpretation of this particular passage, and then you kind of make an argument against it. But I guess suffice it to say that he holds the view, just like we're talking about, that these are referring to one being. However, that 
is not really being faithful to the text. We just went over kind of, you know, one of the obvious reasons that the actual Greek is saying, well, he's making it clear that it's in addition to as opposed to the exact same being. Is there anything you want to say about Bauckham's interpretation? Yeah, what Bauckham is saying is essentially, he says what's important is not what God is, but who God is. And then he immediately turns around and defines who God is in terms of what God is, because that's what's really important. <laughs> what God is, is the only uncreated being. And what they're referring to is the Shema, that is the prayer, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And he is saying that both um, the term Lord and the term one God appear in the Shema. So what it's really saying is that the one God includes both Jesus and the one God within the term one God. It's just a bad reading in addition to being bad logic. I mean, logically, it would entail modalism, which is nonsense if one is a traditional Christian, because that's a heresy. But it's also really bad exegesis in my view, but that's how Baucom reads the scripture. Okay, and again, yeah, if you want a more in-depth argument on that, you can pick up the book and read through that. But that's about all we're going to get into for our purposes here. So the last section here is Christ as God's agent in creation. And rather than cite a specific passage, this is kind of referring to several passages. But the main gist of all of them is that the view that Christ was the agent of creation acting as the Father's exact image emerged within the first generation of Christian writers. In the Pauline epistle to the Colossians, for example, we there's another hymn that reflects a belief that Christ is the pre-existent creator of all things, and the redeemer of all humankind. So basically, this idea is that through Christ, God created. And that's picked up a lot. So in, we get into these later, I'm going to call these quasi-Pauline epistles. It's, un, it's not clear whether Paul actually wrote them. And I'm not sure that there's a real scholarly consensus, but I think that it's very doubtful that he wrote them. In any event, whether he wrote them or not doesn't matter. What they're saying is there's this development that Christ was actually the one who did the creation. He is the active agent that created for the one God. So he's the creator on behalf of the one God because the one God has given him that status. And that's basically what's being referred to in, in Colossians and Ephesians. So, you know, that's an important, I think, development. It's also picked up in Hebrews, where Christ is recognized as the one through whom the creation is made. If this doesn't come into play here, that's fine. But why would they point this out? Like, what's wrong with just God creating it? Like, why is it important to exalt a pre-existent Christ to being the being through whom he created, just to point out that Christ is divine, or and he needed something to do, or what? Where did this come from? It's because he is the high, he is the greatest of all of the divine beings. He is the greatest of the angels. In, in fact, in Hebrews, as you read it, the point is he's greater than the angels. He's not the same kind of thing that the angels are. The angels act at his behest just as he acts at the Father's behest. But he only answers to the Father. Everything else now has to answer to him. But the point of, of Christ being the creator is precisely that God has made Christ his active agent to interact with the created order, and that he is recognized as different than the angels in the sense that he's the one who was over the creation um, given to him as a task by the Father. That, of course, gets developed more in the Gospel of John, and we'll talk about that next week. But it's important to recognize that in this later development, probably between about 80 and 100, we see this development where Christ is recognized fully as everything that is said that Yahweh did was actually done by Christ as his agent. Okay, and I guess that's kind of my point. So is this, this is a later development, because everything else we've talked about is kind of, they make use of Old Testament references, but this seems to be kind of a completely new idea separate from anything that's put forth in the Old Testament, because I don't think it ever, does it ever refer to the second power being the actual creator? Yeah, remember that the second power is called the Debar of God, or the Word of God. You can you can see this referred to many times. Just look up Word of God in the Old Testament, and you'll see what's what's being referred to. And the creation in Genesis is done by God speaking. He does it through his Word. And so God speaks the words, and the world organizes itself as God speaks it to be. So it's the creative power of the Word which organizes and creates the universe. Well, that's the role that, that was given to the second power in heaven in the Old Testament. And so what they're doing is developing this notion. Christ is the second power in heaven. He is the Word of God. He's the Debar. Because of that, he's the creative agent. He's the one that actually, whereas God intends the creation— 
and he speaks the word. Christ is the word that's spoken or the active agent that brings about creation. So that's why that came about. Okay. You know, we'll develop this too a bit later, but basically, I guess up to this point, we've pointed out that we refer to two beings kind of as Lord or my Lord, referring to Jesus. And also, this is kind of a transition point of like the word God, I guess. At least that's what I'm picking up. So the word God, you know, can refer to obviously God the Father. But a couple places in the New Testament, in the in your earlier parts that were written, at least they sometimes referred to Jesus as God, and they had no problem with it just because it's kind of a, a title of the divine being that he is, but they didn't have a, a problem with it. But here, we're kind of transitioning into this further thought that of God kind of more as a collective, if you will, which evolves later into the Trinity, and we're going to talk about that obviously later. Uh, but I just want to read this quote from Terence Callan and then talk about it. So, Terence Callan concludes that there were two uses of the title God, one that was used more loosely as a common noun or title and permitted the view that there were other divine agents alongside the one God, and a stricter use of God as a proper noun that named the one God. He believes that the title or common noun use of the word God was more at home in the world of Hellenistic polytheism, where humans were often seen as divine figures when they were called a son of God. However, he believes that the proper noun use of the word God endures alongside the view that there were beings properly called gods in Judaism, until Judaism rejected the Christian view as a theology of a second god. And that's, we talked about that at the very beginning. This is a quote from him. He says, when Jews and Christians used God in the sense of a common noun or title, they were not identifying this God with the God who is revealed in the Bible, nor were they seriously affirming the existence of more than one God. Rather, they were locating God in the category of the divine. Yeah, so you have this generic term God that is used. Instead of being specific, Hotheos, the God meaning the Father, or one of the terms that would be used for the Son as a term of benefaction, when we're talking more generally in the broader culture, especially the Greek culture, the term God just refers to the, you know, the heavenly being that is the ruler, the one who's over everything and, and the head God. And remember, in, in Greek thought, you had a highest God, Zeus, who was the father of all the gods. But that was also being transcended by a philosophical view of God, an absolute. And so, as the Christians passed into the Greek-speaking world, they couldn't use the word God in a way that they could assume that their audiences understood the Old Testament background, which would give it meaning and distinction. So, instead of adopting this practice where the Old Testament, and I'm citing Old Testament scriptures that can be read to refer to two divine beings, has no meaning to the Greeks. They haven't read the Old Testament. They don't speak the Hebrew. They don't read it. They don't know the Old Testament. And so, as they pass into the Gentile world, they use the word God more generically because that's how the Gentile converts to Christianity would have used the word. Okay, and I know we'll get into this as well more later, but and I, we've kind of talked about this a while back, and I know you don't believe this, but this is some views that are out there, so I wanted to talk about them. So, I know there's some views that kind of like the idea of Christ as divine before his life, some kind of view as the, a later, not invention per se, but a later insight, I guess, that we're kind of talking about here. Because again, in the Gospels, it, it sort of seems like it kind of gets early and earlier when he was divine. So for example, Paul says, you know, he was exalted or becoming this status at resurrection. Then there's Mark who says it's a baptism. I think it's Luke that kind of points out they had a divine birth, and that's where, you know, all the star stuff comes through. And then John takes it and he's like, boom, no, he was actually a pre-existent God, and he was the creator, he was the word. And so I could see how one can get kind of confused with, if he was already basically given all these things before his mortal life, it kind of seems to lessen the achievement of it later, I guess. Just because, for example, if like I was already the heir apparent of some millionaire and I had access to all his money and I could go spend all my money. And then I decided to go to school for a couple years and I said, I won't use all that money ever. And then I got educated and I learned some stuff and then I came back. I'm like, all right, now I'm ready to use the money again. It's a little different story than if 
while at school, I did something so great and wonderful that this millionaire saw me and then adopted me and let me have access to his millions of, of dollars. It, it just seems like a kind of a different story. I know some scholars view Jesus as he was a, a human, let's say, that was exalted to divine status. Maybe he had a predestined role to do that. But like, you know, for example, like Abraham or Melchizedek or all these second temple figures, they, they were exalted during their life because of something not pre-existent, although maybe some of them, I, I know I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I just know those are some scholarly views. So what do you think about that? Well, you have these competing ideas. One is there is a sense of benefaction that comes through achieving great acts. So in the Roman world, when the general would come back after waging an incredible war campaign, then the emperor would adopt the general as his son and give him the, that honor and in so doing would raise him to the status of a member of the, of the royal family. A great benefaction. But that's because of things that he did. That competes with the notion that Christ was declared to be God's son, that he was adopted as God's son because of his status. And as you say, when we have the status, well, Christ was actually a divine figure before the world was because he was already with God. You had, you, we go back to the other Old Testament images where Christ is, is the very word of God in creation, and he's the very being recognized in the Old Testament as the angel of Yahweh, who is God's active agent um, in interacting with the world. So what they're doing is, is they recognize all of these different threads coming together, and in some way they're competing because it's like, well, you know, if Christ was adopted, he wasn't already his son, but if he was preexistent and divine already is the angel of Yahweh or is the word of God before and, and involved in creation, Seems like he was already there. He was already the son of God. He didn't have to be adopted at all. And he's, he has his, in other words, you have these competing ideas of benefaction because, as you've recognized, as a result of something he's done that's so great, he's being recognized for that. Or he has it because of his status that he's had all along as God's son. So you have these competing ideas. They, they all get put together. There are all these strings of, of scripture that come together. And in some way, it's not a totally, I mean, if we were playing the language game of logical coherence, you would have to say, I'm not sure all these images and symbols and, and metaphors come together in a way that make an entire sense. I couldn't make a seamless fabric out of them. But when you put them back into the world and you recognize that these are just metaphors and images to try to explain who Christ is and what his relationship is to the Father, and as a result, what our relationship is to the Father through Christ, and you see how they operate in, in the culture in which he existed in, as a benefaction in the culture of honor and shame, then it begins to make a lot more sense. And you go, oh, I see the various strains of the Old Testament scriptures that were used to explain Christ and how they came together to give kind of different ideas about what Christ's relationship was to the Father and, and how they illuminate different facets of that relationship is what I would want to say. Okay, and I'm, I'm just asked because it seems to be so important that this is the dividing line for different factions of early Christianity, meaning, you know, it kind of differentiates a, I don't know what you call it, like a kind of an ontology of God as well as just the basic understanding of what Christ is. And I guess for Mormons, it would kind of inform what is possible for us. I, I know some Mormons, for example, view that Christ was just, an, you know, he was special and he was a really cool, obedient son of God before, like all of us, but that he, you know, had to go through what he did, and then he was exalted to what he was, although I'm sure those same Mormons also hold the same view that he was in the Godhead before this life, so it's just kind of two competing ideas that's still in Mormonism as well. Yeah, I mean, we have different explanations and, and different images that we use. If we see these as word pictures that are attempting to get at something that we can't fully describe, then you don't have to play the, the language game of logical coherence. You can just say these are different models or, or different images and pictures that are used to explain it. They're kind of a, a pre-theoretical type of an explanation. By pre-theoretical, I mean they're not trying to play that logic game of, of theory and coherence. When we get into the later discussions and we are playing that language game, things will, of course, change. But these are the scriptural images, and I don't think we should expect them to all to go together seamlessly. Okay, perfect. That's, I guess, what we want to get at for this discussion. Okay, well, that 
kind of sums up the chapter there. So unless anything else about Christ as creator is something you want to go over. No, no, I think we can we can get into that more in John. So, yeah, like I said, we'll get into the Gospel of John next. But for now, those are the scriptures that we are talking about tonight. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.